Welcome to Myanmar in a Potshell, the podcast that puts current developments in Myanmar into context. My name is Rodion Ebbikhausen, and today's topic is local democracy, a feasible alternative to top-down governing in Myanmar. I would like to discuss the topic with Thomas Wells, who is the coordinator of the Myanmar Research Network at the University of Melbourne. His research focuses on contested meanings of democracy, human rights, and accountability in Southeast Asia, and the impact on development policy. His first book, Narrating Democracy in Myanmar, examines activists, aid workers, and political party leaders in the lead up to the historic 2015 elections. It reveals diverging narratives of democracy within the opposition movement and amongst international supporters. Before entering academia, Thomas worked as an aid and development advisor and consultant with various NGOs, including Save the Children, with seven years living and working in Myanmar. Saisam Kam is a PhD researcher at the International Institute of Social Studies, The Hague. His research focuses on land politics, rural democratization and regime transition. He grew up in Shan State, the northern rural borderland of Myanmar. Over 20 years, he worked with different local non-profit organizations in Myanmar, working on various community development and humanitarian issues, and including supporting the internationally, uh, internally displaced people over 10 years in the front lines of the Kachin conflict. So thank you for joining us today. And let's start with the discussion. So democracy is one of the most used buzzwords when it comes to Myanmar. The international media often talk about the struggle for democracy. Reports are mostly about the government, the military. Uh, that is what happens at the highest level in the state. But democracy, however, is also something that the demonstrators and the opposition members keep demanding. So it's a buzzword. But today, um, we, we do not want to talk primarily about what happens at the top of the state or democracy as a buzzword but about concrete democracy at the community level in Myanmar and what people make out of the concept of this democracy in their daily life. So therefore, I'm happy to ask Tamas my first question as, been, as he has been working in the field for many years. So maybe you can tell from your rich experience in the country about a concrete event where you had a kind of a aha experience, how democracy is understood in Myanmar at the grassroots level. Yeah, thanks, Rodian, and thanks so much for for uh, inviting me to be part of this podcast, and 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 a real privilege to be on it with uh, Sai Samkam, who's got so much experience and knowledge. I'm really looking forward to um to, to hearing what he's got to say about these questions. Yeah, I, I, your question's a good one. What what were these sort of aha moments that we have where we try to make sense of what people think is the meaning of democracy uh, in, in in Myanmar and um, I, I mean, from my research, and I'd love to hear more from um, Tyson come about about this. Uh, but th there's so many different strands of meaning that so many different things that um, people might attach to the word democracy. So I, I, a lot of my research has been really thinking about that question of well, what does democracy mean? What what are the different ways that people understand it through Myanmar's history, and then also current in sort of contemporary times and. My research is focused mostly on activism and um, international aid workers um, and um, kind of democratic leaders. Um, this is all, of course, before the, the coup uh, last year. Uh, yeah, so I think I'd, I'd probably answer it in that regard that, that there's just such a diverse range of different strands of meaning. I, I'll just tell one little tiny anecdote that, that kind of piqued my curiosity in this. Uh, I was just riding in a taxi in Yangon and I... I was doing my research at the time and I just, the taxi driver and I were, were chatting and, and I said, oh, um, yeah, um, so, so do, do you think Myanmar is a, is a democracy now? This was in the period before the 2015 elections, but um, after the kind of semi-transition from 2010. Um, and he said, no, no, we're not a democracy. Look at the side of the streets. They're so messy. There's so much, you know, and the way people drive, of course we're not a democracy. So, uh, and, and then I said, I, I, from our previous conversation, I knew that he'd been to Singapore. And so I said, oh, um, you went to Singapore. So is, is, are they a democracy in Singapore? And he said, yeah, have you seen how clean that place is? It's just, it's just so organized. 
so uh, that really interested me that that there was this really strong association of just just from a taxi driver, kind of a grassroots sort of story that it's associated with um, order and cleanliness and kind of advanced economies, perhaps. So there was, um, yeah, that, the way that he attached that meaning to democracy, I thought was fascinating. And there's so many of those little meanings that come out in different contexts. It's very interesting to hear that. So that is exactly what we want to talk about, like the different meanings and levels of democracy. And um, maybe, uh, Saisam, as you are a native Shan, uh, perhaps you can give us an example of democracy or democrac democratic practice you have learned about in Shan state. Uh, what does it mean maybe for Shan people to think about democracy? I think it's, it's, it's quite complex, isn't it? And then when we talk about Shan or experience in Myanmar, I, I, I think I, I would say there are uh, the experiences are not homogenous, right? They are differentiated based on the, you know, geographical area, ethnic or religious uh, divides, um, experience about conflict. And we also have to understand that in Myanmar, it is not a single authority, right? We have ethnic armed insurgent control area. We have ethnic militias control areas. We still have, you know, the, 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 the arrangement of ceasefire during the 90s. And the legacies are still there. For example, like the ethnic-based um, self-administered zones, for example, like Wat region. Wat region, for example, they, their official language is Chinese and they use Chinese currency. So, you know, it's, it's a very strange mix of character of a state. So, it, it, you know, when you talk about what is the experience of democracy, it will be a very wide array, you know. If, if, if you ask me about experience in Shan State, those who are in Wa State might not feel democracy at all, you know, including like electoral democracy or other forms of. But if you, if you follow the line of, or, or if you agree with the line of President Xi of Chinese, you know, they are also talking about democracy, right? They might claim that this is a form of democracy, right? But at, at the same time, you know, you, I can also tell you, I mean, I mean, cut me if, if I say too long, but I, I can tell you like 2010, um, you know, We are not that excited because we know that 2008 constitution, it's, it, it's like what Melissa Crouch called like preemptive, um, authoritarian constitutionalism, right? So you make that constitution to prevent a full democratic transition and to, to consolidate the military power, right? So that, that kind of understanding, we said, oh, well, you know, 2010 election, they prevented NLD from running from it. And then you know that the military leaders just changed their um, uniform into civilian clothing, right? And, and then, but, but then, in, very interesting, around 2012, we started to see that, oh, you can criticize the government, or people can start demonstrating. So there are some form of democracy uh, going on. I, I think in the ethnic state, it's, uh, it's, slower you know a lot of these are happening in the urban area the democratic debates you know the 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 assertion of civilians right to participate in politics and also pressuring the government to provide the services and to protect human rights right that that's happening a lot in the border uh, uh, in the urban centers but in the ethnic areas the conflict still ongoing as you in, introduce i get involved with the humanitarian work, usually in the natural disasters re response, you know. And then the, we, we felt like we have a lot of experience already how, how to do uh, emergency response. But then 2011, conflict come in. Over 100,000 people being displaced, and then people got killed, you know, civilians, people's rights are violated. And then we are started questioning what is going on. On the one hand, you see a very exciting democratic transition going on. But on in, in the rural area, you are facing a very violent conflict. So uh, if you ask me the the experience, it's it's totally different. I, I think in, in some area, especially in the ethnic area and the armed insurgent control areas and the militia control area, 
I I I think would be similar to what the uh, Amer- the, the American uh, political scientist Jonathan Fox call authority authoritarian enclaves. So I understood nor from both of your uh, statements and thoughts that uh, there are thousands different ideas and views and understandings of democracy, and it is hard to tell there is like one idea. But maybe you can give like an example where you would say, okay, in this case, in Shan State, for example, there is something like a democratic structure or a democratic core, which uh, I would say is like a local grown democratic idea. I, I can say how people benefit from the electoral democratic tra- uh, tr- transition, right? And and then I can also say how how do we look at these uh, uh, what what is called ethnic frontier areas, right? Like James Scott um, talk about these um, places that these ethnic minority who are living in the mountain areas they don't like the idea about centralized state and centralized power, right? They 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 like more of an autonomous um, existence. I mean. Historically, they are running away from the centralized state making, right? So, if if we look from that kind of perspective, how do they know state? How 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 do they know governance? When the taxation come, when the forced conscriptions uh, to to serve in the military come, only then they know. So so all they know about the state is you know not really supporting them. So when when you talk about local democracy, what are people expected? They are expected uh, services. Uh, Particularly, education and health is very important for ma- many of them, and then also access to justice, and and then also um, personal security. Because these these areas, we have to understand that over sixty seventy years, there are also you know uh, intensifying or subsiding kind of like you know uh, 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 circles of violence uh, and and conflict in this area. So. Relative stability and peace. These these are people's practical daily experience about democracy. And if you ask me some particular experience, I I, I think for me it's ki- kind of like an aha moment. Was I think in 2015, um, if if I'm not mistaken, in the eastern part of Lashu in northern Shan State, seven civilians are killed by the military um, while they are weeding the 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 the, the corn plantations. Um, and then you you know they got arrested and the villagers noticed what is going on, and the next morning the troop moved out of that that cornfields and when the villagers go in they found the bodies there, and then when when they dig up these civilians were wearing military clothing they were very surprised because they know these people they are not soldiers but they are killed and buried. And then what they did is they approached the Shan National League for Democracy, SNLD um, member of parliament, and with his support, they successfully sue the responsible person. And the military officers were handed um, prison sentence. We don't know how long they stay in the prison, but at least uh, for the local villagers, that is kind of like the first time uh, in 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 a very long history of conflict, you know, multiple decades of experience. The first time that they successfully sue a military officer and, and, and get punished. So, a, 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 you know, a, somehow a, a kind of um, justice has been served for the victims. So these, these I would say, are, are the practical experience. You want to add something, Thomas, or should uh, I? Yeah, I've, I've got, I wanted about just giving a, a quick example, <clears throat> um, thinking about, we, we've talked quite a lot about Sort of ethnic minority areas in in Myanmar. A lot of my work has been w- with uh, more Bamar activists um, or, or democratic leaders, and I, I met with one uh, a member of the NLD and was talking to him about uh, his views on democratization. So this is this is some years ago. I, I asked him about wh- what's the main thing that needs to happen in order for Myanmar to move towards becoming a democracy. And what he said I found fascinating in that he didn't talk about we need the right kind of electoral institutions or, you know, there's a whole range of things he could have said. He said, we need people, we need leaders, and we need people who have the right motivations. We need people who, and he used the Burmese word sedana, really, like he, he really emphasized that, that we need to have this sedana, which means kind of benevolence or goodwill 
we need to have leaders who have this selflessness and that will bring about democracy in our country. So I, I thought that was really fascinating. And, and I mean, in, in my book, I, I talk about a, a narrative about democracy based around this idea of benevolence. And other people have said similar things about a moral democracy in, in Myanmar, where there's a, there is definitely a, a narrative there amongst a certain set of activists or democratic leaders who look towards the need for the benevolent leader, a, a leader who is has the right heart and right motivations. And obviously, Aung San Suu Kyi has fitted into that for some people, into that mould of being the, the leader who, who has that kind of right motivation, has sac- sacrificed for the country, demonstrated her selflessness. So, so I think that's one example of a, of a story that I heard quite frequently told that emphasises people's motivations and kind of heart and their sacrifice and selflessness more than it emphasises liberal institutions or kind of procedures of governance. So that was one of the really big sort of things I noticed, um, especially that was different to what we might see as the Western kind of aid sector or... I, we have found out like maybe two things like you have had you have um, said or talked about like the sadhana like this benevol- benevolent leader so it's like a moral moral fitness of the leaders to to create a democracy and but I think there was an interesting point uh, Sai Sam mentioned as well like that in a way the state the state should uh, provide services like education and health but uh, all the rest you should stay away from me. I do not want to pay taxes. I do not want to, uh, in a way, be forced to do this or that. So, so he should provide service, and that's it. But I would like to know, like, as you already mentioned, like it is a different idea about democracy what we have maybe in the West. So, how would you say does this um, then qualify as a democracy in the Western sense, or would we have to rethink the concept of democracy in Myanmar, and what can we make out of it? Yeah. So, are you, are you referring more specifically to? Um, so some's example before about the provision of services that for some people they experience democracy as being the provision of government services to them, but otherwise they want to the government to be at arm's length. Yeah, I, I guess yeah, I guess the core of your question really is if we've got these many different diverging ideas of what democracy means, how do we start to relate that to? I guess, a, 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 an idea of liberal democracy that most Western embassies or Western aid agencies would be having their minds about some kind of liberal democracy. I, in, in my experience, there's some really strong points of overlap for many people that they expect some sort of electoral system, um, some sort of constitution that you know, provides people with the chance to participate and, and elect leaders. And so th- that being a fairly widely shared idea but i think once you start to dig deeper that's when the differences come out okay maybe say some you want to add something yeah i I just like to clarify that it's not the local does not want to pay tax you know i i mean when when i talk about people's irritation about tax in myanmar is there are official tax and there are a lot of under table and different ways of taxing by multiple authorities multiple um Groups, you know, these are things uh, I'd like to clarify. And yeah, when when you talk about democracy and 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 all that, and Tamas also talk about like you know the 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 moral moral dimension of that and the expectation of moral righteousness in the leader as well as the ruling political party. The key area of my study is called critical agrarian transformation. To, to look at Myanmar as a largely agrarian society, a very traditional society, this is, I, I think, another important dimension of that. And we are seeing uh, uh, very conservative um, attitudes among the NLD MPs, for example, when we try to advocate for a more liberal drug policies, a more liberal policy to protect uh, rights of the sex workers, for example, face pushback from the you know, what we thought would be a progressive NLD member of the parliament. So from the the ruling elite to the rural population, we are seeing a lot of uh, conservative attitude and, and also the role of Buddhism and, and the influence of Buddhism in, in our everyday life on democratic and demo, uh, on democracy and democratic transition. 
I, I think there is a bit too much of that, you know, uh, em- emphasizing on Buddhist morality, uh, the importance of that in, in, in Myanmar. I, I think I kind of even felt like um, assertion of Buddhist morality is becoming kind of like a bur- Barrier to a more liberal democracy, and 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 yeah, I would like to give a very short example about you know uh, how how do the local people organize themselves uh, to to assert their democratic rights? We can compare two things. One is the huge area in the northern part of Myanmar called Hukong Tiger Reserve, uh, proposed by the um, uh, WCS Wildlife Conservation Society based in the U.S. So you can kind of see like. The, the Western idea about wilderness and, and, and conservation imposed on Myanmar, uh, working together with the military authority at that time, you know, the area was de- designated. The people has been pushed out and all that, you know, without any proper consultation with the, the people, without respecting the rights of the local or indigenous people there. And in contrary to that, uh, the, the Karen, uh, people in the southern Myanmar, they call Selwyn Peace Park. It it won the Equator Award uh, uh, a few years back, and the way they organize that is totally different. It's a bottom up approach. You know, they are using their their local knowledge, their their tradition, including like including like uh, their 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 spiritual beliefs in the in the forest and in in the you know uh, nature in the rivers, all of that. And I think uh, that kind of thing has a lot of elements that we can look uh, talking about democratic transition, uh, particularly uh, local-based democratic transition. I think this last example is really very interesting and striking, and I, it, it goes into a direction I wanted to ask as well. Like there are like the United Nations, or especially NGOs and INGOs, are have been active, and some are still active in the country. And they have always been committed to democratization. And uh, to this end, like committees were founded at the village level, for example, which ethnic minorities and women have been represented. There has been a kind of a inclusive approach. But very often, or there are lots of examples or legion of examples that those structures ceased to exist when the project ended, like when the funding was over. And so it did not somehow transition and that they people did not take over or change in a way their the way of doing things. So how well do such Western blueprints for democratization and inclusion actually fit to Myanmar's locally very different structures? Yeah, for sure. Uh, you're absolutely right that that's a really a very common, especially international NGOs, uh, but also local NGOs as well, going into communities and saying we're going to set up a village development committee or whatever. Um, and, and often dictating the way that they're set up. And you're absolutely right that often as soon as the project finishes, the committee finishes as well. Um, I, I think from my experience and, and working with different NGOs and also different ways of working, I, I suspect that the more successful pathway is to build on structures that are already there. So uh, where a village might apply for a grant to do a certain kind of project and yeah, within within that village, for example, there, there is already an existing structure and they've done things before. But then through that grant, perhaps there is an opportunity to be talking about the way that the group works or makes decisions and how inclusive are they of women or of people with disability or there's all kinds of ways that over time that can be shaped rather than setting up a new committee from the start. So I think that's probably a more successful pathway. I, I will say, though, that I, I think while international NGOs and UN agencies are genuinely committed towards fostering local democratization. Their ways of working themselves are not particularly democratic a lot of the time. So the way that money is dispersed or it's very top down, and even if you looked inside those international NGOs or UN agencies, they're extremely hierarchical and the way that decisions are made are definitely not participatory. So so I think uh, it's difficult for them to be saying we want to build local democracy when their processes are often extremely undemocratic. And Saisam, do you think that uh, like local NGOs or dem- uh, NGOs which are stronger uh, locally connected, do you say they have a better uh, success record uh, than those INGOs? And what do they do differently to support democratization? I think it will depend a lot, right? Um, I, I, I don't necessarily see that 
um, local and the international NGOs are at the polar polar app opposite, right? The 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 real situation it's more complex than 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 that. We I I, I would say um, generally as a person, you know, all my life working with local organization, I really think it's very important to talk about why the locals are important, you know. But at the same time, I also, coming from the local organization, I also can see the the limitations also, right? Um, so I, I, I would not necessarily just, you know, close my eyes and and, and, and just praise uh, the local are the best, you know. There, there are always uh, two-way dialogue and then we, we, we can learn from each other. I can I can say that uh, there are a lot of mistakes made by the UN agency and the INGOs, especially, you, you know, like as if they have a, a prefabricated solution for Myanmar, right? A, a lot of the approach of the, 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 the international experts. Um, the, the local know the local situation better, but the local cannot be too arrogant either, you know? We, we cannot just say that we know everything. So so, so when you talk about liberal democracy, um, uh, not all the local traditions are good. So we can learn from, you know, I, I, I really think that there are a lot of good elements from the, 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 the liberal, um, ideas that we are borrowing from other countries or, or from the outside or, or brought by the international organization, especially I think like the role of women. The role of women in Myanmar compared to some other South Asian countries, they are much better, you know, they are taking a lot of leadership position. They are in the, leading in the economy and, and, and all of that. But still we cannot, we cannot, I cannot close my eyes and, and, and say that there is no oppression against women in Myanmar, right? That's also the reason why we are seeing in the spring revolution that young people are really challenging political leadership. You know, you, you, we cannot say Don San Suu Kyi is there. So, you know, women are leading politics. No, she came from a political dynasty. We have to un- understand that also, right? I think to, to, to go back to what you are saying, it's very important to look at coloniality of power in looking at the relationship between the donors, international agency, UN versus the local organization. It's, I think it's very important to look at that. We are talking a lot about decolonization. So for the donors, it's very important to understand the dynamic. And when I talk about decolonization, it's not only about the, the, the colonialism and the coloniality brought by the British uh, imperialism, right, uh, occupation. I all, I'm also talking about there is a process of internal colonization in Myanmar. That is what is felt by the ethnic minority that the majority Burma are occupying. But even now the whole country has started seeing the military as an alien forces occupying Myanmar. You know, they, they does not have any, social contract whatsoever left. So I, I think that is very important to look at that. And and the second point, what is very important, where does the um, aid um, sector come from? You know, like where the money come from? It came mostly from the neoliberal capitalist country, neo, neoliberalism, which have an intention to make the state smaller and share the responsibility with the private sector, right? And, and also some with the civil society. And w- when we, when we look at that, that, that's become a bit clear, right? Um, my, my experience is the local, organi- uh, local NGOs in Myanmar are very strong. Some of them are working in the, the anti-corruption sector, for example. And then when they found out a very systemic state corruption going on, and when they talk about this with the international community, UN embassies, they back off immediately. They said, this, these are too complicated. We, we, we don't want to do anything about that. So yeah, I mean, the, the, the development thinking has to be more comprehensive. Okay, thank you very much. Sorry, I would like to make a kind of a jump because I think there was an interesting point you mentioned before about like Buddhism. And if I'm not totally wrong, there are at least some Burmese who claim that Buddhism itself is a democrat is democratic and that therefore the country has always uh, possessed like democratic ideas and beliefs anyways and i think like and and do you think that this is an accurate decision uh, description and and what is the relationship between like uh, the strong buddhist belief and democracy or a liberal democracy yeah thanks that's a great question and yeah if i think if we look back through Myanmar history there's all kinds of 
quotes of political leaders who were linking democracy and Buddhism. And sometimes that was a also a political link to, um, for, for instance, during the colonial times, um, portraying democracy as being a, a sort of indigenous um, Buddhist-inspired thing in, in, in Burma, that that could keep the, the British uh, ideas about democracy at arm's length. So there's, there's different political uses of Buddhism um, around the meaning of democracy as well. In terms of how we approach thinking about democratization in the context of not just Buddhism as well, I mean, I think we're thinking about other religions in Myanmar as well and Christianity um, uh, and Islam having really powerful, their own powerful ideas about what democracy might mean um, in that context. Uh, yeah, w- w- one example perhaps is is another conversation that I had with an NLD leader and was asking about the connection for him between Buddhism and democracy. And, and he raised this idea of the uh, wutia ngapa, which is like a, um, the, the wutia are like a, a set of uh, relational obligations that people have in, in a hierarchical way between parents and children or monks and lay people or teachers and students, but seen in a very positive sense where it's there's the responsibility of uh, to look after the, the parent looks after the child and it's the responsibility of the child to obey the parent. Um, and, and in that relationship, there can be a healthy expression, he would say, of democracy. Uh, if we both understand our our position and our roles and respect, there's responsibilities and there's sort of obligations on both sides. So I, I thought that was a fascinating reflection from him about um, particularly going back to that idea of moral democracy or this sort of benevolent leader idea that it can have kind of uh, outcomes that are quite opposed to what a liberal democratic view might have about equality and participation. Yeah, maybe I'll, I'll leave it there and, and hear from Sasan. Thanks very much. Um, coming here and doing my study, I'm I'm really personally torn. I came from the background that you know I see Buddhism could be very supportive of democ- democracy and democratic transition, and now I'm in 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 the stage that started seeing a lot of how we practice Theravada, especially Theravada Buddhism in Myanmar could be very problematic in democratic transition. I, I, I have a lot of reason behind that. When we talk about Theravada Buddhism, we have to understand the history of that also. You know, I mean, as a, as a Buddhist myself, growing up with all that, you know, I was blinded by my, my uh, uh, devotion, you know. When I clearly try to read and look at that, you, you understand that since the time of Gongbang or, you know, the, 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 the kingdom before the British invaded Myanmar. Theravada has always been sided with the powerful. And the other thing is, historically, again, you know, not, not so long ago, during the SBDC, SLORC, you know, the, after the, 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 the 1988 uprising and, the, you know, the, the military government at that time, they established a ministry called Ministry of Border Affairs. And then with, under this, there is a Buddhist missionary for the mountain areas. That, that, that's what it is called. So what, what it does is proselytizing conversion of the ethnic minority. Many of them are, are Christian. The missionary still exists today. And most recently in social media, people got, you know, including a lot of Buddhists criticized uh, because they are trying to build a, a stupa in a Christian village. The monk uh, posted it on, on his social media and, and said that, I'm very happy that they are all Christian, no single Buddhist, but they are now helping me to build build the, 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 the Buddha. And cr- Buddhists are criticizing, what is the point of that? There is no Buddhist in, in that village. Why are you going to build a temple? So there, there is this, the, the switch of consciousness uh, at that time. The, the, the third point that I'd like to make is it's very important to see the intervention of Theravada Buddhists in the democratic transition in Myanmar. During the Uta Insane government time, the, the Buddhist nationalist group successfully 
drafted and pushed um, Udang Sen government to enact four discriminatory laws. You know, the religious conversion, monogamy, and 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 that kind of law um, enacted. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I just reflecting as so someone was talking there about uh, reflecting about what what it means for Western agencies, particularly who are trying to engage in Myanmar to bring about democratization. I think one of the big things that we all need to understand, and I put myself in that category as well, is that Buddhism and religion more broadly in Myanmar is is going to be a reality in the country's governance going forwards. So, so it's not like, oh, thinking oh, as Myanmar becomes richer, it'll become more secular like um, Belgium or, you know, Sweden. It's going to become more like that. I, I, I think we need to expect that the future of Myanmar and its democratization will be entwined heavily with religion. The problem, though, is for many Western agencies that engage there is that we just don't have the tools or the language to try and engage with those discussions, exactly the kind of discussions that Saisam is talking about there. We have such an embedded secular framework that it's very difficult to enter into that world. So I think that's a real lack of capacity from foreigners is in just trying to have the tools and language to be able to have discussions about religion. We're not used to that in the West often. But I think it's incredibly important to thinking about the future of democracy in Myanmar. It's not going to become a secular country that um, we can engage with on secular kind of terms. We need to learn the language and tools of religion to be able to have those conversations. I also have experience working with a lot of uh, Buddhist uh, organization, Buddhist monks, Buddhist youth. Uh, I, actually, I'm I'm also part of a, a movement in Myanmar. One of my friends has founded uh, an org- uh, organization. We we you know I I've been trained by Christian organizations also. You know I'm I'm grateful for that. And and then when we look among the Buddhist youths, we can we don't see that kind of a bit broader, you know, introducing them about social so so social studies, you know, social ideology, social justice, social change. So my, my friend started the, that movement called uh, Buddhist Youth Movements, and then they they've been trained, introduced about liberal ideologies, about environmental conservation, you know, a lot from the left uh, green uh, ideas, you know. And, and also social mobilization and also try to change the things in, in their own communities. And then I can, I, I can see that from that perspective, for example, like the Buddhist concept of brahmacharya, like compassion, loving kindness, you know, they, these are very important people can use and, and mobilize. And there was uh, attempts from the International Network of Engaged Buddhists and Spirit and Education Movement from Thailand, for example. We worked together to bring uh, Buddhist monks and nuns in Myanmar to get exposure across Southeast Asia. You know, what What are the other religions as well as Buddhists are doing? Um, brought them to Cambodia to see the killing fields, for example, you know, so, so that they have that kind of awareness. And when we talk about democratic transition in Myanmar, that is the whole sector that has been forgotten. We are saying that, look, they are, these are very important sector of Myanmar society. And they've been just like us, they've been closed, for, for, for too long and there is no one trying to help them to, to transform or to reform. So uh, some of my questions aimed at understanding to what extent like local ideas of democracy or democratic practices fit or work together with like a liberal democracy in the West. And I at the same time wanted to find out like what democratic ideas are there in Myanmar like on the ground level without like developed on their own. And but I think you would agree if I say like all attempts uh, to have a kind of a centralized democratization uh, from the top seem to have failed so far. Wouldn't you say that there it is time or it has always been time maybe or that there needs to be done a kind of a different approach like to put in a way Myanmar on its feet and try to start a democratization like from the bottom and and how could that possibly look like? And how would you think it, it could work given the, as well, like the very difficult circumstances the country is uh, in at the moment? Yeah, I mean, sa- sadly, it seems uh, like a, a difficult prospect at the moment, uh, building those kinds of, of things. I, I think we've, we've entered, yeah, I mean, it's a very, it's a very dark period of, of Myanmar's history. But in some ways, I, I, I think it, 
it gives, I guess, that opportunity to continue to work on what we're talking about, about that sort of grassroots level or of, of democratization, um, understanding what it means, promoting people um, to have the opportunity to participate. And, and I think, I, I mean, I'd be interested in Saisam's opinion on this, but I think international aid has in some respects allowed levels of participation, perhaps participation for women um, that perhaps that wouldn't have happened otherwise. So there is an opportunity for external actors now to be continuing to work on a small level to to create programs that are participatory and um, help people to um, learn about concepts of um, governance and democracy that they may not have had the opportunity to, to hear about before. I also think there's an opportunity to build on movements that are already there. And then there's definitely a movement uh, that, that I feel where, uh, as Sasan was talking about, about a critique of Buddhism. So not, not throwing Buddhism away, but saying, let's, let's examine some of these traditional ideas, maybe the idea of the benevolent leader, and let's try to find Buddhist inspiration to see that in different kinds of lights. And from people that I've spoken to, a desire to bring and equality and participation, not just at a, at a sort of parliament level, but changing the way that schools work or changing the way that NGOs work to make them more participatory uh, and, and not having kind of a single leader that NGOs are looking to. So I, I think there's, there's desire and movements for reform that are definitely um, happening at the moment. I, I think I, I would just like to Rodian. I, I would just like to say that we should not um, we should not stuck too much in the dichotomy of local versus international. You know, I mean, coming from a Buddhist culture, you know, brought up as a Buddhist myself, and and I still think that there is a lot of nice things that we can learn from Buddhism. But I, I would I would still like to say that. Uh, we should not expect Buddhism will give all the solution we needed. You know, uh, we we have to examine that, and you know, if if it is not, we have to accept it. It is not trying to prove that Theravada Buddhism is correct in every way. You know, in leadership, in politics, in 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 economy. So I, I think we have to go a bit away from that. At the moment, uh, when I look at democratic transition in Myanmar, what concerns me a lot is we are trapped in the identity politics. You you know that in Myanmar, Tamas, right, uh, Rodian, you you you've been there. When we whenever we talk about politics, we 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 would say Obama say this, Kachin this, Karen that. You know it it it's important. You know ethnicity is a very important part of uh, politics, but it it's not all there, all about that. You know. So you mentioned uh, identity politics and this thinking about otherness and we so us and the others is very strong in Myanmar. And would you say that? The NUG or the NUCC is a step into the right direction to overcome this kind of um, otherness uh, and this, like, to make all these uh, borders between ethnic groups, religious groups. Would you say that this is a step into the right direction? That uh, yeah, I think there's a there's a great irony there where uh, the military coup, in all of its horribleness, perhaps has opened up new opportunities to see beyond the identities that were there previously. So so I, I wonder whether, I mean, it's probably brought about new fractures as well, but, but perhaps there is an opportunity because of this common <laughs> obstacle of the military in the country, uh, that, that there is a possibility to come together in ways that weren't possible before that. I, I would agree they are all united against the military, but is there anything else which you think is uniting them, is there is like developing this kind of new unity. Yeah, I, 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 yeah. As, as I tell you before our conversation started, I mean, I, I thought that initially, I thought that this is just my feeling, but after I hear from um, friends from student unions, for example, um, we are actually more hopeful these days. You know, of course, as Tamar said, you know, the tragic events, you know, I mean, I, 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 I never imagined that kind of horror um, faced by the different groups in Myanmar, by the Burma heartland, right? It, it, it's really heartbreaking to see the 
the village is spun into ash and, you know, people are being treated like animals. I mean, but we have seen that a lot, right? In the Kachin, Karen, Shan, Rohingyas, you know, people are started seeing like fascism, you know, the, the role of patriarchy. And, and especially for the young people, um, they are envisioning a new Myanmar. I think this is very important. People are talking about, shall we change the name of the country into spring? You know, that, that, that kind of thing. A lot of very exciting things are going on. And, and I, I think when, when you, when we look at NUCC and NUG, of course, if you look at NUG, young people are there, you know, ethnic minority people are there. But I don't want to paint a rosy picture of that. It's a process. And, and all the political processes are very messy, right? So there are still, um, conservative elements in the top echelon of the NLD dominated NUG. I know only two Muslim women leaders, uh, participating in the NUCC, for example. So Muslims are a very, I mean, I'm important part of Myanmar society. Some, some of my friends would ask, why are you talking about the Rinja all the time? Why are you talking about the Muslim all the time? This is my litmus test, you know, how you treat them. It's really reflecting how we are thinking about the, the future of the country and the democracy and the, and the society we want to see. And if you talk about Rohingya people, they are more than 2 million, 3 million people we are talking about, including those who are in the Bangladesh side, you know. When you compare to like Kachin, the Kachin population might be less than 1 million, for example. But politically, Kachin are also very dominant in, in the political narrative. There are basically some of the concepts that we have to overcome, including NUCC and NUG. One is federal. For example, like the Arakan army, they might not be interested in federal anymore, right? They, they, they can also break away. You know, we, we, we heard news about why do they have some very important weapons from China in their hands? You know, there are suspicion that China, Chinese government is providing uh, support to them. And for example, like the WA, would they ever want a federal? I don't really think so. Uh, RCSS, with their territory control, would they be interested in democratic transition? I'm, I'm very much doubted, you know. Uh, and the concept about the Tainda itself and the 1982 citizenship law, you know, these are the things we have to really challenge. Why don't NUG abolish, when they can even abolish a 2008 constitution, why don't the 1982 citizenship law, which is a racist uh, law? What would you say or what would you ask like international donors, INGOs, like how to preserve and support uh, what is left of democracy and democratization in Myanmar? Yeah, I, I, some people are making comparisons now since the coup and saying we've gone back to the 1990s or 2000s in Myanmar. But I, I think we're in a very different position now and there's such an empowered civil society, civil society organisations, a younger generation who, who have, who, many of whom have only known kind of the democratic, recent democratic period. So there's so much to, 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 to work with for international donors. So I, I think the challenge for them is getting past their own, their own bureaucracies and structures to be able to work with these groups. So rather than going back to the the UN or international NGOs that have, that have over time they've gone gone to, um, I, I would really encourage to go as far as they can to be working with the many many groups that there are now, who can do humanitarian projects or um, other kinds of development projects, but at the same time be working on this new participation or. or um, Kind of this democratization from below. So I think it's an it's it's a, a chance for the international community to really work with a very empowered civil society. Okay, and say some. What is your take on this? I mean, to be very frank with you, I I expect very little from the international um, communities. You know, you 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 see my frustration coming from you know 2011 conflict in Kachin um, you know we can what we can support was only the humanitarian aid when we try to raise human right violation when we try to talk about war crimes crimes against humanity and genocide a lot of the international community does not want to hear this and i even have some people telling me that you know you have to be patient um uh, de democratic democracy takes times 
um, actually, it's not the right time to talk about these things. You know, when we talk about accountability, I, I remember European Union invited uh, Timothy Garton Ash and and asked him to give us a talk about democratic transition based on his his experience in Eastern European countries. And I remember something that he said is whether you get a smooth transition or whether you get a just transition, but you cannot get both. I was very annoyed by that. Point, you know, I want a smooth and just transition, right? But then, you know, I I, I really see that his point is it's it's very relevant. And now, what we are demanding is to cut so sources of income from the the military, like banning the you know um, uh, uh, oil and gas revenue, for example. And then, you know, if you, if you ask me. What you can do, actually, if you can do, try try any means. And I would also would like to request international, you know, to to look into nonviolence movement and violence movement in in a bit more nuanced way. You know, when you talk about young people's leading arm movement, they would say, "Oh, what is that?" You know, all my life I have been opposing uh, war and conflict, but now I I started to see that why the ethnic people minority have to use arms you know why why there is a prolonged war in myanmar because that is the only way that they can protect themselves and i i, I often hear that you know uh, leave your arms there come back to the t- table to talk about politics uh, to use political means to solve the problem actually arm movement it's another extension of, of polit- politics right it's it's it is a politics so we we really have to look into civil society organization, donor agencies, um, academic. We we really have to understand about revolution, um, violence, and conflict in um, nation building, state building, and democratic transition. Okay, thank you for um, this um, remarks and your thoughts about it, and thank you for joining me on my in a pot shell. I think we have learned that there is not one idea about democracy in Myanmar, but there are many ideas about democracy and that this does not always fit to the idea of liberal democracy in the West. And we have also seen that um, this is an important period for Myanmar, but we somehow have to find the solution or a way to support uh, those actors who are there. And I like very much what you said, um, Thomas. So there are so much groups to work with, and I hope um, that there will be some more support uh, for those groups. So thank you very much. And uh, thank you for listening to Myanmar in a Pot Chill. Uh, please tune in again next time. <laughs>